Revelation chapter 19. You'll turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 opens with the destruction of Babylon. And as we uh, turn here, uh, Babylon is uh, a shambles. It's a bombed out wreckage. The smoke is rising and the the city has been utterly destroyed. Uh, in one place it says the smoke rises forever and ever. That's a bit of a hyperbole because we know that Jesus, when He res- returns, restores the earth. But the hyperbole is that it's the whole town, the whole city of Babylon has uh, been burned. And the smoke is rising and... You've seen uh, places uh, after uh, great fires or after a lot of looting and firebombing and stuff like that, and the smoke just seems to billow on and on and on, and uh, that's the essence of Babylon. It, it is utterly destroyed. Interestingly enough, Babylon was destroyed by the dragon, by Satan himself, and the ten kings that he had uh, formed an alliance with. So, in other words, the the satanic kingdom has had civil war, and it has turned on itself. Uh, Babylon had been the the capital of the Antichrist. It had been the, the central city of wickedness in the world. And uh, something happened. We're not told what. But internally, it displeased uh, Satan. And he formed an alliance with these ten kings that we learned last week that would receive power for a short time. And these kings came and together and they destroyed Babylon. And what we find after this is that they then turn their focus. Babylon is over, you know, to the east. Well, they begin to turn their focus toward the Mediterranean, and guess what's there? Jerusalem. And this is the final battle. Uh, This is the ultimate Armageddon of the end times. As Satan and these ten kings, which represent the other uh, nations of the world, turn their uh, wrath on the people of God and the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation, and they begin to move west toward the Mediterranean to gather. Their idea is we will obliterate uh, the Jews, we will wipe out Israel, and we will reign supremely. So that's the setting of chapter 19 of this moment. And... Um, John says, after this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. There's a threefold hallelujah in these first ten verses. And it's kind of fascinating to see the development of this chorus of praise. You remember back in the beginning, about the time that the seals are broken and the trumpets are sounding, we see souls... Under the altar, that is beneath the altar, and they're crying out, How long, O Lord, how long will it be before you avenge our blood? Before you destroy those who have ruined us, who have persecuted us? How long will it be, Lord? And many people feel that the the middle chapters of Revelation are an unfolding of God's answer to that prayer as He begins to deal with the ungodly and the unrighteous who refuse the salvation that He offers. And remember that I've said to you all along, with every uh, new intensity of plague and of God's wrath being poured out, God's offer of salvation is heralded once again. God is continually reaching out to people who are in rebellion to Him. He's waiting. Never do we see the truth more clearly in Revelation of the verse that says, For God is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish. He's not slack about His promise. He's going to come. But He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. And He's waiting. And, and his, his judgments and the wrath that continue to build uh, in, the, in the various kinds of judgments and their intensity are all in one way or another designed to drive people back to God. Remember how I said much earlier on, the goodness of God leads to repentance. God's desire is through His blessing and His mercy and His kindness that people will realize His loving uh, kindness toward them and respond to His love. But if they don't do that, He will bring judgment. 
one way or another, God wants people to wake up and, and make their, themselves right with Him. To come to the cross, to come to Jesus, and, and to be saved. And now, we've run the whole gamut. We've gone to the end. God has heard the prayers of the saints. How long, O Lord, will you tarry? How long will you wait? How long will it take to bring a vengeance upon those who have persecuted us? And now the answer has arrived. God is about to bring the final judgment. He has waited uh, another period of time and he has given every opportunity and this is the moment of judgment. And this threefold chorus of hallelujah builds an in intensity because it starts out probably with the heavenly host who likewise have been waiting for God to triumph over the powers of darkness. Remember, they have been waiting longer than human beings for God to deal with the third of the angels that rebelled and fell. They have been waiting longer for judgment to come. And the heavenly hosts, it seems, are the ones who first cry out, Hallelujah! And then the, the elders and the special angels around the throne they fall down on their faces and they join the chorus, Hallelujah! And then, ultimately, this great multitude, and John, uh, as he describes it, he says, uh, a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, uh, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns, let's rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This last hallelujah is shouted by the multitude of saints from all the ages that have turned to God uh, in faith, all the way back from the beginning, looking forward to the cross, and all the way since the day of Pentecost, looking back at the cross, this encompasses the church of all the ages, Old Testament and New Testament, Jew and Gentile alike, all the people that have responded to the gospel message, a great multitude shouting hallelujah for the wedding of the Lamb has come. It's interesting to note that the word hallelujah only occurs here in the New Testament. Just a, a, a factoid you can use when you're playing Bible trivia, <laughs> if you, anybody ever plays that anymore. But um, it's a word that comes from the Old Testament, which means praise you Jehovah, or you praise Jehovah. Praise you Jehovah. And it's the first and only time in chapter 19 that it occurs in the entire New Testament. It represents the great triumph and victory for which the people of God have been waiting and longing for millennia. They have been yearning for this moment in human history. And the Scripture says at this moment... 
And this is why I think this great multitude is shouting out because something has just occurred. All the saints have shown up in heaven. All the dead and all the living have come together and shown up in heaven. And the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And I want to point out to you, because I've said this many times from Corinthians, but here it is in Revelation. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Notice that she had to be, the bride, had to be given the fine linen. It was not something she could buy. It was not something she could produce or something she could make or weave or sew herself. It was something that had to be given to her because it represents the righteous acts of God's holy people. Friends, this is underscoring a a very important truth. The only righteousness which we can do is the righteousness which is done through us by Jesus Christ in the power of His Holy Spirit. We cannot produce righteousness on our own. Not true righteousness. Oh yes, people can do good things. They can give to charity. Uh, they can donate money to vaccinate uh, people in, uh, in Africa that are susceptible to disease. Uh, they can dig wells uh, around the world. Uh, not necessarily with any Christian uh, intent or interest, and not even necessarily as Christians. Um, They can do a lot of things, but it is always tainted and mixed with motives that are buried deep within the heart and wickedness that still prevails in the human heart. And somehow or another, it's a mixed bag. And you've all heard that old illustration from uh, Evangelism Explosion about uh, offering up our righteousness to God in terms of percentage. (laughs) Uh, If I were to invite you over uh, for breakfast and offered to serve you an omelet, and uh, I was going to serve you a three-egg omelet, or maybe I was just going to scramble eggs for the whole party. And uh, let's say I'm breaking a dozen eggs uh, into the pan to scramble them all, and I put 11 perfect eggs in the frying pan, and the last one I break open is, is rotted. Uh, somehow something happened, and uh, I won't go into the gory details, but anyway... <clears throat> let's say it's not entirely yellow, and uh, all of a sudden you've got this putrid egg. Uh, I can just stir it into the mix, right? It's, it's only one out of twelve, and you'd be happy with that, right? No. If you saw it, you'd say, ooh, throw that whole thing out, because who wants that? It's tainted, it's contaminated. You see... We cannot offer up to God righteousness that's 90% good or 99% pure. 
God is a holy God. He demands a perfect righteousness. We can only give Him what is completely untainted by human flesh. The only righteousness that we have is the righteousness that is given to us. And to go back to Corinthians in the passage where we come before the judgment seat of Christ, remember that we are judged not on the basis of our sin, but on the basis of works of righteousness which we have done. Remember that our sin has already been cleansed. We just talked about that in the time of communion this morning. Our sin has been cleansed. We have been forgiven. We will never be judged for sin. It has already been judged in the cross. When we came and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our sin was, was judged and forgiven and washed away. And it doesn't exist judicially. So when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, there will not be any sin there to deal with. But there will be a life lived, either in the strength of our own flesh or in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God will examine our life. Jesus will take a look. And that which has been done by the Spirit through us will survive the judgment and precede us into Heaven, and that which, or at least into the millennium, and that which we have done on our own is going to be consumed. That's why Paul says it's hay, wood, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stone. If you throw all six of them into the fire, the hay, wood, and stubble will be burned up. That's what we can produce. But the gold and the silver and the precious stone will only be refined. And that's what God produces. You can't make silver, you can't make gold, and you can't make a diamond. Well, they say you can, but it's not quite the same as the ones you dig out of the earth. Um, Precious stones God has placed here through certain processes. And so, that which He has produced will last. Are you with me? And so here in this final event, in this last moment, it says we are given robes to wear, which represent the righteous acts of God's people. We are given those robes. They're not ours, but they are given to us because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. And then he says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. And then in verse 11, as John continues the vision, he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first time that Jesus came, he was hardly noticed. He was born of a young virgin named Mary in a cave in a wall outside of Bethlehem and laid in a feeding trough. The angels wondered in amazement. Only the shepherds came to herald his birth. He grew up an unknown person by and large. And until he was about 30 years of age, he was just a carpenter in Nazareth. Probably an exceptionally good one. An honest businessman. Perhaps a little unusual for his time and city. But as far as anyone knew, even his own family, his brothers, sisters, he was just another guy. And all of his ministry, there was the question, who is this person? Who is he? When he comes back, there will be no question. He will not be a tiny babe laid in a manger in a cave. He will come riding a white horse. He will come with a robe dipped in blood, which is not the blood of the cross, but the blood of his enemies. He will come with piercing eyes and flashing sword. He will come with names written upon him. And on his person is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you remember I told you that all those armies of the Antichrist would move from Babylon toward the west to overthrow Jerusalem. And we haven't dealt into this very deeply yet. But Jerusalem sees them coming. The Israelites see them coming. Literally the entire world arrayed against them. They are facing the battle of their history. They are on the verge of utter annihilation. As they always have, they will give it their best. But they are facing all the armies of the world and they have no allies. And they are all alone. And it looks like it's all over. It's the darkest hour. And suddenly the sky burst open. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords rides through on this great white horse as a conquering conqueror coming forth to do battle. And the scripture says, 
that he himself slays the armies of the world with the might of his power. The angelic host and all the saints who come with him never lift a finger. The angels are not armed. Only Jesus comes as the mighty conqueror. And he literally destroys the armies of the world and puts them to flight, the ones that survive. And he establishes himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, there is a day of reckoning coming. Let us rejoice and be glad that we are on his side. Let us be thankful that we will be riding in his train and not looking at him coming out of the sky. Let us rejoice that we are more than conquerors and victors with him and not the objects of his wrath because as deep as the love of God is, likewise so deep is his wrath. To be loved by God is to be loved with an everlasting and infinite love, but to fall into the hands of an angry God is to be punished and judged with an everlasting wrath. That will be an awesome day when our Lord Jesus returns. I'm going to stop there and we'll pick this up next week. But the things I I want you to take away today is God always answers prayer. The prayers of the saints beneath the altar, how long, O Lord? Our God is a loving God, and so He says, just a little while, just wait, but I have heard you. Hallelujah. The victory is His. And then in the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes back. Like the bride uh, waiting for the bridegroom, the shout of the trumpet goes out through the streets. The bridegroom is coming. The bridegroom is coming. And those who are the bride run out to meet him. And we are caught up together with him in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. And then we return with him to celebrate the wedding feast. But there's this one task that has to be done in his return. He has to deal with his enemies. And he will. And they will be vanquished. And he will be king over all the earth. The chapters to follow are exciting. They're full of joy and blessing. And they paint for us a picture of a heavenly kingdom that is all but impossible to imagine. The things that God has prepared for those that love him. Father, thank you for your word. Minister to us through it. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.